And we're going to be in the book of in the book of Genesis. Um, in chapter three, but before we get to chapter three, what we see at the beginning of things in Genesis is that God separates light from darkness. He separates dry ground from the waters. He creates, <clears throat> says in chapter one, every living thing that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. It says he made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps in the ground after its kind. So all these things God made, and it says that he made them after their kind. So God makes all these things with natures that are distinct for themselves, natures that are very separate from his own. But then it goes on to say something very, very different about man. In chapter 1, verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And it goes on in chapter 2 to say that God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, and man became a living being. So, the Bible does not say that man is a finely tuned animal, that he's at the top of the animal kingdom. It doesn't say that he is a homo sapien, which means wise man in Latin. He's not a man of his own making. It says that he is a magio dei, right? It says that he is made in the image of God, and that unlike any animal, he has a soul that is eternal. He has moral consciousness, and he cannot get away from the fact <clears throat> that God's image is within him, testifying to the fact that he can only be right and function rightly when he has unbroken fellowship with his creator. And I think this is important to consider in our age, maybe more than any other, when we see this tremendous attack against the very basic nature of humanity itself. Men don't know what they are at all. All these questions about gender and race and income, etc., etc., are hopelessly unanswered without starting at the foundational fact that man is made in the image of God. So what we see in Genesis is the way that it really was at the beginning. You had Adam and Eve that were individually perfect, without sin, they were unhindered in their communication with God, and as a result of that, they had unhindered communion with each other. In chapter 2, verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. They were naked and were not ashamed. Well, we don't know how long the age of innocence lasted, but what we do see is that as soon as Adam and Eve chose separation from God, that is, as soon as they chose independence from God, 
to determine for themselves what is right and wrong rather than trusting in God to determine that for them, as soon as they sinned by disobeying God, they stopped being what God had made them to be. And in chapter 3, we'll start reading at verse 7. So they disobey the Lord, they eat of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in chapter 7 it says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that cool there, it's actually wind, kind of what Charles was talking about, walking in the wind of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Of course, this is metaphorical in a a lot of ways. It's rhetorical uh, at the very least because God knows everything. But he says, where are you? And Adam answers, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself, and he said, who told you that you were naked? So it says the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Well, the problem is not that they were naked, right? They were naked before. They were naked and sinless in God's sinless world, and this is something we just can't understand because all of us here are fallen, living in a fallen world. But what is the result of the first sin? Before they were naked and unashamed, and now they are naked and ashamed. Their conscience is wounded. They were made in the image of God with moral consciousness, and they knew that they had sinned. They didn't need anyone to tell them that they had sinned, but it says their eyes were open. They looked at themselves, and they knew that they were defiled. The image of God within them cried out, and they knew that they had violated God. They were afraid of God. They heard the sound of the Lord, it says. They knew that God was was coming, and they knew that they had to be separate from God because that's what sin does. Sin separates from God. So they covered themselves as best as they could with some leaves and tried to hide themselves. So their fellowship with God was broken, and then as a consequence of that, their fellowship with one another was broken. What we see soon after that is division between Adam and Eve, right? Adam turns on his wife. He doesn't seem to assume any responsibility for his own sin. What does he say to the Lord? Well, the woman that you've given me gave me the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. One thing we could see here is that there's no such thing as a small sin. There's no such thing as a private sin. It's not small and it's not private because, first off, it's a violation of the character of God. So that is anything but insignificant. I mean, all they did was eat a piece of fruit that that God said they weren't supposed to eat. I mean, you know, you tell a small child, don't eat the apple, we're going to have dinner soon. And they, you know, they try to gnaw on the apple or something. I said not to do it, go sit in the corner for a few minutes or something, you know. Doesn't this seem extreme? 
what follows here as we'll talk about the result of sin. But there is no small sin because it is a violation of the holiness of God. There is no private sin. Why? Because God knows. (laughs) It's a sin by definition because it's against God himself. So it is not private. It's not something you have to deal with. I have a friend that none of you know who's going through a, a difficult time in his life. And I told him I was concerned about him. And his response is, well, you know, self-reformation. Well, there's things I'm working on. There's things I need to deal with. Maybe you've heard someone say that before. Well, I'm going through a lot. I just need to deal with some things. There's no dealing with with sin in that way because it's not private. It's not something you have to pick up and look at and turn around and solve it like a puzzle is solved because your real problem is God himself. So the primary offense here at the beginning is against God, a sin against God. And as a result of that, the union between Adam and Eve is wounded. And as we know, all creation is impacted by their one sin. And the land that was good, the creation that God calls good, is now cursed. And you see that in chapter 3 at verse 14 When we read these verses, we tend, I think, at least myself, I tend to focus more on, you know, God cursing the serpent. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you know, you've tempted Adam and Eve, cursed are you, we get that, and we focus on the fact that now he's going to crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the ground, but what does it say? Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. So there's a whole lot in there. God called everything good. Everything was pleasing to him. And now cows and every beast that exists is cursed. The ground itself is cursed. You have thorns and thistles that spring up. And you see that the world itself is fallen. Or as Paul says about the world we live in now in Romans 8, he says that creation is enslaved to corruption right it's it's decaying it's groaning it's suffering and this is a striking thing <clears throat> you know we still see the glory of god in creation and we know that from the psalms but just to think that even looking at the most beautiful sunset it is not what it should be it is it's fallen it is tainted so creation fell in in, uh, this sin, and sorrow and pain and sweat and toil enter into the world. And the man that was formed from the dust of the ground is returned to the dust of the ground as the most profound demonstration of creation being undone. So we see that God treats man's sin as very significant because man is made in the image of God, because he's made to know God. And men know that they are made in the image of God because every person has a conscience. 
What does Paul say in Romans 2? You don't have to turn there. I'm going to mention a few verses as we go along, but Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15, passage we know well. Paul's talking about the Gentiles who are without the law, <clears throat> the Mosaic law. What does it say? They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So Paul writes this about men after the fall, right? Their conscience may at times be seared, our conscience may be hardened, we may be unfeeling at times, but our conscience is still there. The image of God is still stamped on us. So we're made in the image of God. Every person has a conscience. That's, that's a, a testament of the image of God stamped on us. And the conscience speaks to us. Even if you're lost and don't, and don't know Christ, you know when you have done what is wrong and when you've done what is right. Even though the lost man does not have the power to do what is right or to do what's ultimately pleasing to him because he's outside of Christ, because he does not have the Holy Spirit within him, as a rule of life, he still knows what is right and what is wrong. And that is because of the grace of God stamped in us by his image. <clears throat> Every man has an inner testament urging him to do what is right, this law written on the heart. In Romans 13, verse 5, Paul's talking about the church's obligation to be in submissive to governing authorities. And he says we should do this not only because of fear toward God, you know, disobeying uh, the authority that he's established on earth, but what does he say? He says, but also for conscience' sake. He says, do it because you know it's right to be in submission. <clears throat> well, the conscience speaks. What does it say? Well, the conscience of every man cries out that it must be clean. Since the fall, every person has had an evil, defiled conscience because of the knowledge and the guilt of sin. <clears throat> and as Hebrews 10 says, we need to be sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So that's quite a thing to think about as you talk with, with someone. You don't need to know anything about them. You don't need to know what their personal convictions are, what their background is, or their persuasion. You know that if they're a human being, that they're born a sinner, and that they need to be clean from an evil conscience. You know that as a fact. Well, how can it be clean? Well, nothing we do. Both gifts and sacrifices cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Hebrews 9.9 9. Nothing we do can make us perfect in conscience. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can make us right with God. And this is something, you know, as a church, it will never be anything but of the highest significance for us to meditate on these type of things. <clears throat> Only the blood of Jesus Christ can make us right with God, can free us from the punishment of sin, and can rid us from the guilt of sin because Jesus Christ is fully God and he is sinless man. Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood 
of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Think, those of you who know the Lord, think of the years wasted prior coming to Jesus Christ in efforts trying to sort out this problem of sin, trying to understand, well, why is it that I don't have peace? Engaging in different activities, trying to work penance uh, toward the Lord. It says here that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the conscience has to be cleansed, and the conscience has to be kept clean. Only the true Christian can have a clean conscience, so it makes sense that only the Christian can keep a good conscience. But that is something that Scripture talks about. The conscience must be kept clean. 1 Timothy 1.19, Paul says, keeping faith and a good conscience. So we, we think about, well, I want to live a life of faith. I want to trust in the Lord. I want to look away from myself and believe that what he said is true. And that's good and right. So we think about keeping a life of faith, but do we think about keeping a good conscience? Because they go hand in hand. And Paul says, some have rejected these and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So it's just as important to keep a good conscience. In Acts 24.16, Paul says, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. So Paul lives with the sense that everything he does is, is exposed before the eyes of the Lord. And he wants to, to be clean and at peace in his heart regarding everything he does in the eyes of the Lord. And he, he wants to live with the same pure, clean conscience before men as well. So only Jesus can make our conscience clean, but a sanctified life will keep our conscience clean. Well, the way that we keep a good conscience is by the way that we live. Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves wholly in all things. So you see there, there's this, Assurance, the writer of Hebrews says, I know that I have a good conscience. Why? Because I want to act, I want to conduct myself in a way that's honorable in everything that I do. So you cannot separate a clear conscience from the way that you live. Second Timothy 1.3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. So there's no considering the conscience in isolation of action. Um, it, it is tied with the way that you live, and as a Christian, it, it's tied with the way that you serve God, serving God with a clear conscience. Well, I don't think it comes as a surprise that since all humans are made in the image of God, and the conscience is a testimony of God's image, that our conduct impacts other people's consciences. And that's a very important thing to think about in the church. And Paul deals with this 
on at least two occasions. One is Romans 14. Paul is addressing the issue of clean and unclean food among the church at Rome. And in chapter 14, verse 14, he says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he says, well, this whole issue of food, you know, on one hand, I mean, you can just, you can just throw it aside completely because the mature man in Jesus Christ knows that no food in and of itself is spiritually, is ceremonially unclean. But he goes on and says, but to him who thinks anything is unclean, to him it is unclean. What does he say? What does he mean by that? To the person who is convicted, that is convinced in his mind that partaking of this food is wrong, he's wounded by doing that, it's unclean. It would be wrong for that person to partake of that food because of his, his position on that, because of his, his conviction. So Paul is teaching us that the conscience must never be violated. Even if there's an area that you need to grow in in your understanding and be strengthened in faith, you should never, you should never violate your own conscience. It would be morally wrong for a person to violate their conscience, even if the conscience is overly sensitive, um, is not well-founded, or is based on weak, weak faith. So the answer is not to push through because someone else says, well, it's okay, it's not forbidden, or it's not wrong, or go ahead, this is fun, just come with me. The answer is not to violate the conscience. The answer is to strengthen faith so that the conscience follows appropriately. So what does this mean for us? Well, first of all, we see that this is ultimately the work of the Lord. We cannot change someone else's conscience. We have to be loving. We have to be careful that we don't judge uh, this type of person in the body who, who has an overly sensitive conscience and feels that things are prohibited which may not actually be based on Scripture. In Romans 14.20, Paul says, Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean. There he goes again. Everything is clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. So you see the situation. There's nothing wrong with eating this. Well, this other person thinks it's wrong. Well, I'm eating it anyway. I don't care. what. I mean, their position, this is silly. I, I'm free to do what I want. You know, I'm free in Jesus Christ. I'm free from sin. I'm going to eat this. It doesn't matter to me if, if they're offended at all. It, it says that it is evil for me to do that because I'm offending them. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles because it's, it's not from love. So that's quite a thing there. You can actually do something that in and of itself is not wrong, but you can do it in such a way that it violates another person's person's conscience, is not from love, and because of that, this thing, which is fine in and of itself, 
has now become evil for you to do. It's actually sin. So, <clears throat> we have to be mindful of all these things, not to violate or disturb someone else's conscience. Well, just like the conscience can be hypersensitive, it can also be calloused and unfeeling. It can feel too much, and it can feel too little. And why don't you turn with me to Rome? Uh, sorry, to First Corinthians chapter eight. And the situation here in Corinth, in Greece, is that there was a lot of food that was being sold at the marketplace that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul says at the beginning of this chapter, <clears throat> he says in 8 verse 4, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. What does he mean by that? Of course there's idols. I mean, there they are. You look at them. They're statues. You know, you can buy one. But what does he mean? He says an idol is nothing. There is one true God and an idol is nothing. It's made, out, it's made by man. It's, made out, it's just a piece of wood. It's a post. It's nothing. So he says, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. But if we read on starting at verse 9, Chapter 8, verse 9, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble." So Paul is saying that we ultimately have to give much more consideration to not just whether one thing is in and of itself particularly right or wrong, but we also have to give consideration to the appearance of what we do, what others might think about what we do. That's what we have to consider, especially when we're talking about the opinion of a young or a weak Christian who may be emboldened to sin as a result of how we use our freedom in Christ because of immaturity. So we have to maintain a clear conscience before God and before men. And in this case, he's talking about a person who has, who's weak in their faith and as a result of that, there's lack of discernment and their conscience is, is um, not feeling what it should. They're easily derailed and, and led into sin. So, what comes as a result of having a clear conscience before God and before men? What follows? What's the outcome of having a clear conscience? Well, sin, as we saw at the beginning, brings separation from God. It brings punishment from God, fear of God, shame, but a clear conscience 
results in confidence before God. It's the exact opposite. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says, For our proud confidence is this. What's he going to say? I mean, you think about all the things Paul has said, like in Galatians. May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What's he going to say here? Our proud confidence is this. The answer, the testimony of our conscience. That in holiness and in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So there's a whole lot in there. Paul has this overflowing, this pride and confidence in the fact that he knows that he has conducted himself in a way that pleases God. He's been holy, he's been sincere and pure in his intentions. He's not uh, relied upon his own wisdom or the wisdom of the world, but the grace of God. He has conducted himself in a way that is right in his dealing with others in the world, and he says, and especially toward you, especially toward the church in Corinth. And you think about that. Church of Corinth was a mess. But Paul was particularly, uh, particularly uh, encouraged in his own heart by the fact that he had done right to them. In Romans 9.1, Paul says, My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So you see that... Um, Paul has this amazing unity in his mind with the Holy Spirit. Uh, When you have a defiled conscience, there is lack of confidence before God. You think about that. You think about just the wasted energy, the, the, the worry, the fear. The confidence in the character of God is, is, is swayed in your mind because you're not doing what's right. You know, the cloud has come in. So, um, to review, man is made in the image of God. He's made to know God. Every person has a conscience that testifies that this is true. Every person is born since the fall with an evil conscience that can be cleansed only by Jesus Christ. A conscience is kept clean by living a sanctified life in obedience to God that considers not only whether or not something is technically right or wrong, but actually thinks about the interests of others and whether or not this impacts them and wounds their conscience. And then the last thing is that keeping a clean conscience allows us to have confident communion with God. And this is all because of Jesus Christ. Communion was broken in Adam, but it's restored in Jesus Christ. So the story begins with a man and his wife, with perfect, unhindered communion, unashamed, and it ends with the man, Christ Jesus, and his church. 
together with perfect communion, unhindered and unashamed. Well, in terms of this confidence, I think a great passage, many passages to consider on this are in the book of 1 John. And I know we're kind of going through a lot of passages. Um, But I thought I would just mention a few here from 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. I think these are encouraging. Now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. That's 1 John 2, 28. So you're abiding in him, you're, you're obeying him, you're doing what's right, and the, the, the objective there, what's driving you on is that, you know, when, when Christ returns, I want to have confidence when I see him. He says, and not shrink away from him in, his, in shame. That's the reality. If your conscience is defiled, if you're not clean in Jesus Christ, living a sanctified life, you're going to be ashamed. You're going to be ashamed when he comes. 1 John 3:28, sorry, 1 John 3:18 through 22 um, is a meaningful passage as well. Um, so I'll, yeah, I'll just start at verse 18 little children let us not love with word or with tongue but indeed in truth we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure or persuade our heart before him in whatever our heart condemn us for God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So you see, there it is again. It's, he's talking about the conscience again, that law in the heart. If you have confidence before God, it's only because your heart doesn't condemn you. And whatever, here's the amazing thing, verse 22, and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. That's a tremendous statement there. <clears throat> if only to live a life of unhindered communion with God with a clean conscience, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. If you want to have confidence in prayer, you have to have a clean heart, a clean conscience. It reminds me of Psalm 119. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I'll not be ashamed when I look upon your commandments. You think of the time you spend, <clears throat> spend in the word. I mean, to open up a passage and say, praise God by the power of Jesus Christ. I've, I've been doing this. I've had victory in this. I've been pleasing the Lord. Um, it's it's a whole new level of entering into the presence of God. Um, in First John four seventeen, 
through 18. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. There it is again. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They hid themselves. Why? Because they were afraid. Perfect love casts out fear. When you know you've been cleansed by Jesus Christ, and you know that you're living in a way that pleases him, there's no fear. Fear is cast out. So you see this idea of confidence in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4 of 1 John, and you see the same thing in chapter 5 too. In verse 14, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. If you want to know that God hears you when you pray, if you want to know answers to prayer um, regarding regarding difficult situations if you want to know the reality of the power of God in prayer you've got to come to him with a with a clean conscience with a clear heart so I think these things are encouraging for us helps us to understand who we are how we should treat one another in the body and I think it's an encouragement as we share with other people that are lost because we don't have to reason with someone to try to convince them what they already know and everyone already knows that the only way they can be right is to be right with God. Amen.